Hi guys, welcome to another episode of Business Announcer Show and today we are in conversation with Lane Kawaoka um, who's going to be talking to us about real estate and uh, family office advisor and more. Okay, Lane, tell me about uh, your journey and what inspired you to pursue a career as a family office advisor and real estate syndicator. Yeah, so to, today we own and operate um, $2.1 billion of deals um, namely apartment buildings, but, you know, I, I kind of work a lot with, you know, getting people getting started. You know, when I first started to invest, you know, I was still working my engineering job full time and I, you know, just bought a little rental property, realized, you know, the power of rental real estate and, you know, just bought more and more and more, um, eventually getting 11 rentals back in 2015 and then expanding to private placements and syndications and apartment deals um, after that. Um, so that's, you know, I think I kind of call it the the linear path, right? A lot of people out there, myself included, you know, we're we're taught by our parents to go, go to school, study hard, become a white-collared professional. And then, you know, I think that's where maybe there's just a little bit of this distaste you know, if you're investing in the traditional investments, 401ks, stock market, mutual funds, you're just not going to get ahead doing it that way. Mm -hmm. So real estate syndication is a key focus for you, right? So can you explain uh, this concept for our audience and elaborate on how you've managed to achieve success in this field? Yeah, so... Yeah, I think like people understand buying a rental property or maybe a duplex or a quadplex. Well, I think what a lot of people don't realize is just great economies of scale when you can get above 50, 100 units. You know, normally when you get more than 50 units, now you can have a full-time leasing person at the property at all times to take in new tenants and, you know, work the problems that inevitably come up when you have, you know, that many tenants. But when you get above 100 units, now you can justify having a full-time maintenance person that you pay their salary. So you can get away from all these very expensive third-party repairs, You know, bringing an off-site plumber or HVAC repair guy on-site, for example. And you know, so there's a nice little sweet spot in terms of maybe a hundred to a few hundred unit apartment complex where you got great economies of scale. There's not fierce competition from unsophisticated mom and pop buyers that are typically buying, you know, rental properties under a million or two two million dollar purchase price. But maybe, you know, if I were to say anywhere from you know ten million dollars to forty million dollar purchase price, there's a nice little sweet spot in terms of less competition and great deals out there. And the the only problem is, you know, to buy a $40 million asset, you're going to need to come to the table with $15 million of equity and maybe some rehab dollars. And to do that, you know, this is a, a, a world where at one time, you know, large REITs and institutional companies could play in. But, you know, with the ability to syndicate capital from private investors, you know, maybe everybody putting in maybe a $1,500,000 from maybe 100, 200 investors, you know, it's able to sort of democratize these investments where investors are able to get into great deals and pool their money together and allow investors to diversify with multiple projects, multiple geographic areas. Mm -hmm. 
So how do you approach managing a family office, particularly when it comes to real estate investments? And what advice do you have for others who are aspiring in this area? Yeah, so a family office is is traditionally known as a, a family that owns or that has uh, over 50, $100 million of net worth. At that point, they are their main business is not in operation per se, but their business is managing their money and investing in the right deals, typically from a passive investor perspective. And so, you know, you got a lot of money to manage, right? And it's a job in itself. And that's kind of the role of a family office advisor you know, to not only, you know, vet the deals, but also kind of find new deals to go into as the deals recycle. Um, so, you know, it's kind of a, a, a job in itself, um, you know, where you're kind of outsourcing a lot of the operation of the individual properties and you're more playing on a higher level in terms of, just kind of moving around the chess pieces here and there on within your portfolio. Right. So diversification is often, um, you know, emphasized in investing. How do you guide your clients in diversifying their real estate portfolio? And what principles do you typically follow? Yeah, I mean, when we look at properties, we look for emerging markets. So locations, speaking specifically about, you know, United States, we like to invest in the southern um, states, we call these the Sunbelt states. Why? Because typically the populations are increasing at a greater rate down there. Um, we try to stay in landlord-friendly areas. Um, so more of the red states, so places like Texas, Alabama, Florida, Arizona. We also, you know, also from like a family office level, right? Now, this is more speaking from your own portfolio of many, many you know, investments holdings. You know, what, another thing that I'll recommend to my clients is never invest more than 5% of their net worth into any one individual investment, right? There's always investment in risk. You never know what's going to happen with one particular deal. But on a larger portfolio, you know, when you've got dozens of deals, you can have some sort of solitude and peace knowing that you have an, a good level of diversification at that level. But if you're starting to invest larger than 5% of your net worth into any one deal, you know, 100% divided by 5%, you can quickly realize that your, your, your holdings are going to be more concentrated in one or two of these properties. And you're not going to be able to get that, you know, that level of diversification. That's true. Balancing risk and reward is crucial in investment, right? So can you share your risk management strategies, especially in the context of real estate investments to ensure the best in, uh, outcomes for your clients? Yeah, I think, you know, why do we go to real estate? Well, of course, the tax benefits, right? We're able to use a lot of these passive losses that we get from real estate who offset our taxes, which greatly augment our real returns, what we keep in the bank at the end of the day. But I think the second big reason kind of goes to your question is, you know, real estate is a hard asset. Yeah. It's not like investing in a service-based business where the asset may be a client list. And if the business goes belly up, that client list isn't worth anything. You know, in real estate, you're able to at least sell off the asset and you know recruit at least majority of your 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 equity there 
Um, and this is kind of where, you know, I think people, it goes back to owning brick and mortar businesses, you know, some, some investments, you know, think of like the railroad, right? The railroad has the rails, the land, you know, it's, it's a lot of brick and mortar, hard tangible assets that are kind of underlying in the business. And this is kind of, I think this is the essence of real estate and real estate operation. Right. So the importance of continuous learning cannot be overstated. How do you stay updated with the latest trends, laws and regulations, in, you know, in these sectors and how uh, do these updates shape your strategies? Yeah. I mean, the nice thing about real estate is it, it doesn't move that quickly. Right? And I think that's why real estate is a great industry for, you know, investors who maybe ran a business elsewhere, made a lot of money and come back to real estate because it really does move slow yeah. um, and the trends don't really change too much, right? At the end of the day, especially when we invest in workforce housing, you know, housing made for the lower middle class and middle class, you know, it's, it's always going to be there, right? There isn't much more of a archaic type of need than rental real estate. Um, right. And from that respect, it doesn't take much for us to kind of stay on top of things. Of course, from an operations standpoint, you know, there are always, you know, different technologies like implementing AI for onboarding new tenants, screening tenants, um, you know, training employees with the newest best practices. You know, a lot of that will come from partnering up with a professional property management company that specializes in that business. And, you know, I would say, at least for myself, you know, interacting with other colleagues in my space, that's a big thing where we trade, you know, what's working, what's not, what's up on the horizon. Um, I would say not too much in terms of like trade newsletters, you know, like a lot of those things are just a little out of date, in my opinion. You know, podcasts are a great way, although, you know, you got to cipher through a lot of podcasts to get the gold nuggets, right? Which, you know, I would probably say, you know, like your, your network is kind of, I think, where you're going to get the the, the biggest bang for your buck, at least in a time efficient manner. Right. Speaking of interacting with others, how do you establish um and maintain meaningful connections in the real estate and investment community? And how has networking influenced your career? Yeah, I mean, I think it's harder in the beginning, right? When nobody knows who you are. Yeah. But once you've established a track record and, you know, other people who also do what you do, you know, recognize who you are and you continue to come back, you know, I, I think you can kind of see where it gets easier the right. longer you you play in the game and you you get success. Um, so, I you know, that's obviously not very useful for somebody getting started. Um, I would just say, you know, whenever endeavor you go into, you know, have the attitude that you're going to stick it out and grind it out, you know, good times and bad. And you know, at that point, you'll probably just stick around longer than most people. And you'll start to develop that network that, you know, that you know, we're talking about here. That's so crucial. Right. Managing time and priorities is essential for success. How do you organize your day and manage your time effectively, particularly balancing your various roles and responsibilities? Well, I mean, nowadays we have staff, right, to take care of a lot of the the duties, the technical duties. Um, you know, so a lot of those things are delegated to people, and, and workloads are, you know, appropriately balanced. 
um, you know, it's kind of gone with the whole, like you hire people that are better, you, better than you in particular areas and you spread right. the load. Um, but, you know, I'm still working in the business myself. Um, I would say one technique I use is, you know, I try and write down, you know, what are some of the big things I need to get done? You know, maybe two or three big things I need that are critical, that are going to move the needle, that are going to be that first domino that's going to move other things forward. And, you know, throughout the day, there's going to be fires and, and things that happen that are going to draw my attention elsewhere. There's also going to be procrastination and other forms of resistance. However, if I get those two or three things done that are critical to the bigger picture, you know, throughout the week, you know, this compounds on each other and, you know, kind of moves me towards my bigger goals at the end of the day. Right. Speaking of employees, so if, um, you know, ethical business practices are fundamental, how do you and your employees main tra maintain transparency and ethics in your dealings, ensuring that the best interests of your clients and stakeholders? Well, I think the way we kind of, or at least I say, like I try and keep it very simple, you know, I mean, have the client in mind, right? Be a good fiduciary with their money. Um, treat it as your it was your own um, you know at the end of the day you know if things don't work out you know you did your best you and you and you fought for the client's best interests um, and if and I, I tell people to strive for that because in everything they do because inevitably you're going to have things not go your way um, and you know at least you can kind of look yourself in the mirror to say you know like well, that particular project didn't quite work out, but you know what? I did everything in my power to for it to hit success, and I also, you know, put in my own money and lost it too, right? Um, at least being able to, you know, if you're really at a at a crossroads, think a year down the road, five years down the road, and you look back at where you are now, you know, are you going? Did you take the honorable path? Did you do the right thing? Right. Finally, financial education and literacy are vital. What efforts do you make to educate and empower your audience, both through your podcast and your platforms? Yeah, I mean, that this is kind of where I've tried to encapsulate everything in my latest book, The Wealth Elevator. Now, there's a lot of financial education out there. I think most of it is predicated towards people getting started, you know, under half a million, million dollars net worth. Um, there wasn't really anything written for our investor base, you know, people who are moving to, you know, million dollars plus multi-million dollar net worth stages of their life. And what I realized as I was personally kind of going through the learning stages myself is, you know, the, the strategies change based on where you're at, you know, people, and it's just not a one size fits all strategy. And to the way I explain things in the wealth elevator and where the contract for the wealth elevator comes from is you're trying to scale this building and there's multiple floors in this building and each floor has particular strategy for what you're investing at that time. What are you doing for your taxes? What are you doing for life insurance? What are you doing for, um, you know, your mindset at that point? And then, you know, at some point, you know, like, for example, when you, go above two and a half million dollars net worth. Those strategies sort of change. And when you go above $5 million, $50 million net worth, the strategies change. So I kind of outlined it in my book where you're able to see 
you know, what's the next stage, what's the next strategy, but also maybe a couple levels above where you're at to kind of see the pro progression and to understand the synergies that kind of the genesis that kind of happens throughout the time, this journey that I call, you know, the wealth elevator, right? Which is the financial journey, right? Getting to financial independence is right. what I think the end game for most people is. That's really true. So thanks, uh, Lane. With that, I'm done with all my questions. Thanks for joining us today. Do you have anything to say to our listeners? Yeah, if you guys want to check out um, The Wealth Elevator, um, check out thewealthelevator.com. Um, we also have a podcast, The Wealth Elevator. And if you guys have any questions or want to get access to some of our free educational content, please shoot us an email, team at thewealthelevator.com. And thanks for having me. Thank you so much.